You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, First Peter is where we are, so uh, if you want to flip there, it's great to see you this morning. Glad you're here. We're in part two of a set of sermons through the book of First Peter. So you're catching us on the front end. I'd encourage you to make sure you stay up with us and uh, follow along with us as we um, journey through this thing together. So First Peter um, chapter 1. You want to make sure you get there. Okay, so First Peter, um, we talked about this last week, is one of the most comprehensive books in the Bible. It covers a vast territory of, of Christian theology, what we're to believe about God, and Christian ethics, how, how we're to live this thing out. It covers this, this huge amount of, of information and, and issues and areas. Uh, Martin Luther said this about uh, the book of First Peter. He said, the epistle of, of Peter is one of the grandest of the New Testament, and it is a true, pure gospel for Peter in Col or teaches the true doctrine of faith, how Christ has been given to us, who takes away our sin and saves. This is the book that we're getting to kind of live in. This thing that covers vast territory, vast territory, and it gives us this beautiful picture of all that Jesus has done for us. So, so this is where we are, First Peter. Okay, so with that, let's go to verse one, and uh, we'll pick up where we started last week, and then we'll, we'll get to the three verses we're looking at today. First Peter chapter one, verse one goes like this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles. That's the two words we looked at last week. Elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Okay, so that, that was the content of last week. That, that was the two verses that we looked at. And so just to, to remind you of a couple of things here. One is Peter is writing to, to Christians who are suffering. They are in the crucible. They are in the first of affliction. You have got suffering saints that are reading this letter. And to those suffering saints, to, to these people who are experiencing persecution, that um, they're experiencing all of all, like every form of suffering. He calls it various trials in verse six. These various trials to those Christians, he reminds them of two things in these first two verses. One, that they are elect. We looked at this last week, that, that elect has everything to do with your relationship to God. It's this profound theological idea that God has chosen you. That's what it says in, in uh, 1 Peter 2, um, 9, that, that he has set his affection on you. And in verse 2, it says, in the foreknowledge of God the Father, that we talked about this last week, that doesn't mean that God just knew about you or some choices that you would make. That, that's a pregnant word, that word to know in the Bible. That means that it would be, essentially be synonymous with God saying, I foreloved you. I foreloved you. Before, before the world was created, I set my affection on you. Before the world was created, I determined that I would break down every barrier that existed between you and I. But before the world was created, I determined that I would win you over by my grace. This is what he's saying when he says that, that you are the elect, that God has set his affection on you. And listen, that is at the center of theological controversy for so many people today. And, and now think about how the readers of 1 Peter would hear that though. That Peter isn't trying to engage in theological controversy. He is trying to comfort suffering Christians and he's trying to point them to this sure kind of source of steady hope for them, steady comfort for them. That God has set his affection on you. You know what that means for you in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your loss, your pain, your tragedy? That God is not forsaking you. God has not abandoned you. God has not left you. God has set his affection on you. He loves you. He's with you. Do you see how that works itself out? He's reminding them, this is who you are to God. You are the elect. And then he says, you're not just the elect. You are elect exiles. This is who we are in relationship to the world. 
So, so one is who we are in relationship to God. Elect is who we are in relationship to the world. So we are elect. In other words, our allegiance, our loyalty is ultimately to God. And you know what that makes us in the world? Rejected. So, so we're elected by God and we're rejected by the world. And he's drawing, and when he says that word dispersion in verse one there, he's drawing from a rich Old Testament theme there. His readers would instantly know what he's talking about when he says that word dispersion. In 586 BC, the people of Jerusalem were, were overrun and the people were, were marched out of Jerusalem into foreign, basically territories, foreign land, on foreign soil. And they had to set up life as temporary residents, as aliens in this foreign place. And he's drawing from that picture, these Old Testament saints, and, and he's saying, listen, as a Christian, this is what you are if you're living on this planet. You're a temporary resident. You're an alien. You're not living here forever. Don't, don't consider this home. In other words, he's saying, that, listen, there should be something odd and out of step with a Christian. There should be an unsettledness about us. There should be a difference in, in our vision and values in our life than culture at large. There, there should be a different in the li- difference in the life patterns of Christians as opposed to culture. There should be a difference in that. We should be a peculiar people, a strange people. We, we should be out of step in the sense that, that we view everything in life differently, that we view money differently, that we view our houses differently. We view our families differently. We view our time differently. We view sex differently. We view all of these things different. This is what he means when he says exiles. See, it's elect that this is who we are to God and exiles. This is who you are to the world. Elect is you are God's people. Exiles is you are God's people embracing God's mission. And and here's a big idea in 1 Peter, that that you don't carry out the mission of God. God. God's plan to reach the world isn't by Christians becoming like culture. It isn't by Christians being cool and fitting into culture. It is by Christians keeping their distinct identity as elect exiles and being different than culture. That's how God goes about reaching culture. Okay, so so this is what he reminds his readers of right off the bat. And then that takes us to verse 3. This is where we're spending today. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Here's the first thing to say about this passage. This passage is praise. This is the first thing you need to see about it. It is praise. You're getting kind of an inside look at the heart of Paul here. And what you see in these three verses is heart, Paul's, or Peter's heart just explode, pop open, break open. This is what you're seeing. You're seeing his heart explode in worship, erupt in worship. Right? This passage is primarily praise. And listen, um, when you read this, it's important that you don't read it with kind of a monotonous tone. This is not a monotonous three verses. This is a vibrant three verses. This is a tearful three verses. This is a worshipful three verses. And listen, this is the point of preaching, right? Just like Peter here. His point is not just to move information to you. His point is to move your heart to God. That's the point of what we're trying to get at here. The the point that we've got this morning, big picture wise here, this is what Peter's trying to do for his readers. He's not just imparting information. He is trying to stir up worship in them. And so by the time we finish today, here's the hope that we're going after, is that there would be this emphatic, you see the end of that, by the way? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, exclamation point. 
that there would be like this exclamation point moment at the end of this service today where your heart, just like, just like Peter's here, it explodes in worship. It explodes in all that God has done for us through Jesus. Okay, so, so here's the question that we're going to answer. Why is it that Peter's heart breaks open this way? But why is it that Peter's heart just explodes in worship here? Why does it do that? Okay, I want to point out four things here and kind of track these things with you. Four things that cause this explosion, this eruption inside of, inside of Peter's. He's writing these three verses. Verse three, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Okay, here, here's going to be thing one. The reason Peter's heart is exploding here, the reason he's got great affection, the reason that there's a vibrant tone to this, an energetic and emphatic tone to this, is, is God has caused us to be born again. You see it? Verse three, God has caused us to be born again. Okay, now when, when we're talking about the word or the term born again, this is a term in need of resurrection today. There's all sorts of confusion about it. Listen to these words from Sinclair Ferguson as he talks about the importance of seeing this idea of being born again correctly. This is massively important. He says it this way. To have a clear view here is to pave the way for all other doctrines of the Christian life. To make the mistake here, right at this point of of born again, what this, this term means, conversely, will mean that the whole focus of our understanding is seriously at fault. You see what he's saying? He's saying, if you miss this idea right here, this idea of what it means to be born again, if if you've got kind of muddled thinking about this, foggy thinking on this, then it just leads the way for muddled thinking about everything else. This is massively important. And here's the problem. In Christian circles, there is all sort of foggy thinking as it relates to the idea of what it means to be born again. And listen, Christian vocabulary gives this away, right? And so so here is how you um, a lot of times hear about people talk this idea of born again. They'll say something in the vicinity of this. Are you a born again Christian? Like, are you like a born again? Is that what you are? Okay, now here's what that statement implies. That statement implies that you can be a Christian without being born again. Do you see that? You can't. It's saying the same thing. Born again Christian is like saying, are you a Christian Christian? They're the same thing. See, there's not like a second class of Christian. Either you are born again and you're a Christian or you're not. See, you've got to be born again to be a Christian. The prerequisite for loving and knowing and wanting God is that God makes your heart alive, that you are born again. That's the prerequisite of it. You remember the conversation in John chapter 3, verse 3, where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus? And he says, truly, truly, I tell you, that's emphatic, that you must be born again if you're going to see the kingdom of God. See, this is the idea. That, that to be born again means you're a Christian. You, there's no, this isn't like a special class here. This is all Christians. Born again equals Christian. Okay, see, see there's all sorts of muddy thinking. So let's kind of mine some of the mystery here. First of all, um, we'll define it. New birth defined. What, what does it mean when we say born again? Like, what does that term mean? And I hope that this is a word that you'll add to your vocabulary if it's not in there. That this idea of being born again kind of introduces us to a big theological word called regeneration. Okay, if that's not in your vocabulary, it's worth it. Go for it. Just tuck that in somewhere. Make some room, right? Regeneration. Okay, so, so we're going to let a, a theologian of about 100 years ago, A.W. Pink, help answer this question. What, what does it mean to be born again? When the Bible says that, or this theological term, regeneration, what does that mean? Here's A.W. Pink's um, definition of that. He says this, 
Regeneration is that miracle of divine grace wrought or kind of brought about in the soul. So it's an internal issue. Being born again, it's this internal act of God, this divine grace wrought in the soul, which enlists the affections Godward. So in other words, if you've had, if right now there is something in you that says, I want God. I like God. Jesus is great. If there's something in you that says that, that is because you, this, it's the effect of regeneration. It's the effect of being born again. He says, which enlists the affections Godward, which brings the human will into subjection to the divine and which produces a real and radical change in life from worldliness to godliness, from disobedience to obedience. You see the idea here? This is what regeneration, being born again, is. When, when you're born first into the world, you're born into a family. When, when you're born again, you're born into God's family. When you're born first into the world, you're hostile to God, at best indifferent toward God. But when you're born again, you've got great hope in God, great affection toward God. I like to, to think about regeneration this way. This, this might help for you. Regeneration is the radical act of God that reshapes, that remakes, and reorients the inside of a person. It fundamentally changes the inside of someone. This is regeneration. This is what it means to be born again. That there has been a fundamental change at the core of a person. That we go from being sin-centered at the core to being God-centered at the core. Okay, that's regeneration. This is what it means to be born again. This is new birth defined. Now, let me display this for you in the New Testament. This is new birth displayed. There's a lot of pictures of this throughout the Bible. Um, you've got 2 Corinthians 5.17. It's pretty well known in the New Testament. Um, you've got this idea where, where Paul's going to say, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Okay, this is regeneration. That there is an old you and there is a new you. That, that God recreates you. He remakes you. He reorients everything about you. That in a sense, you are still you. You still go by the same name? right? You've still got this personality. You've still got, you're still you, but you are a completely new you. This is regeneration. This is, this is what 2 Corinthians 5, 17 is teaching. One of my favorite illustrations of this and just examples is in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 36, verse 26, there's this description of regeneration. God is saying that there will be a day that I take the heart of stone out of you and I put in you a heart of flesh. That's regeneration. That's 2 Corinthians 5.17 in different terms. God remaking the inside of us. And then do you remember this picture? If you haven't read Ezekiel 37, you ought to read it sometime. It's crazy. This is one of the wildest pictures of regeneration in the Bible. Do you remember this picture where, where God, he takes Ezekiel to a valley of dry bones? You remember that story? It's crazy. I'm telling you. So he takes him to the, this, this valley of dry bones and he says, uh, Ezekiel, can these dry bones live? And Ezekiel's like, well, God, you know. I, I kind of think he's saying, I have no idea if they can live. You know that. I don't know. And, and God says, Ezekiel, you prophesy over these dry bones. And here's what you tell them. That God's going to breathe life into you. That, that he's going he's to form flesh over these bones. He's going to give ligaments to these bones. And he's going to breathe into these bones. And these bones are going to live that they may know God. And so Ezekiel prophesies over them, and then all of a sudden it says the bones start to rattle. They start to shake. Ligaments start to form. Flesh starts to form over them, and, and breath goes into them. And I love how it finishes in Ezekiel 37, verse 10. It says there is a vast army standing before the Lord. That, that's a picture of regeneration. 
It's dead people coming alive. See, regeneration is not bad people becoming good. It's dead people becoming alive. This is what regeneration is. And you see it all throughout the, the scriptures. That it's this idea of not immoral people becoming moral people. Not sick people becoming well people, but dead people becoming living people. Okay, this is displayed in, in, throughout the scriptures. Okay, and then, then let's go here. New birth is the work of God. And look at 1 Peter here, chapter th- or verse 3. New birth, new birth is the work of God. You see it? Verse 3, he has caused us to be born again. Do you see that there? He has caused us to be born again. Now, I mean, Peter is pretty clear on who's got the active role here, who's got the passive role. He's clear that we have got the passive role, that this is a work of God in you, that this is something God does for you, that he is the one that makes you alive. Like dead people don't make themselves alive. Only God can do that. Okay, so I I think one of the most graphic displays of new birth or regeneration in the Bible is in in, uh, in Ephesians chapter 2. Remember Ephesians chapter 2, first 10 verses? graphic display of regeneration. Here's how Ephesians chapter two is laid out. Verse one, you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You're dead in them. This is what you are. You're not like sick. You're not, you just need a little medicine. You're not, you're dead. Okay, now think about the implications of being dead. That means that you are spiritually unresponsive to God. That there's nothing in you that responds favorably to God. There's nothing in you that wants God. There's nothing in you that desires God. You are completely unresponsive to God. And this is the idea of being spiritually dead. Then verse 4, it says, But God, in his great mercy, because of the love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. Okay, now here's the wrong imagery, imagery that a lot of people have with their salvation. Here's wrong imagery. You're in the water, you're bobbing, right? You're just, I mean, you're, you're absolutely exhausted. You know you need to be saved, you want to be saved, but you're about to drown. And all of a sudden, Jesus pulls up, he throws his life preserver out, it, it's right in front of you. Now, all you have to do is just throw one arm over and he'll pull you in. That's the wrong imagery, right? And you say, why? Mainly because of the Bible, Right? It says that we're dead in our sin, right? It says we're de- dead people don't throw an arm over. You see, you see what's happening here. That's the wrong imagery. Here's the right imagery. In absolute rebellion against God, we jumped into the water. We were instantly sucked under by an undertow and we're lying at the bottom of the ocean dead. That's where we are. We're dead. We're unresponsive. No move toward God. No want of God. We're dead to God. And in great mercy, God sends Jesus. At great cost to himself, at the cost of his son, he sends Jesus that goes into the water. He throws us over his shoulder and he pulls us out to the shore and the spirit breathes life into us and we're resuscitated, we're brought back to life. That's the picture of what it means to be saved. This is regeneration. This is the work of God that saves someone. This is how it happens. I think that there is, um, in most people, this idea that when we get to heaven, we're going to slap high fives with Jesus as if we were good teammates together, right? He did a good job at his part. He threw the ball, and we caught it, and we scored the touchdown together. That is not the imagery. We're not slap, like, slapping high fives with a good teammate, but with a good Savior who brought us back from death. That's the imagery of what it means to be reborn. Are we seeing that? That this is the work of God for us. Okay, and look back at verse 3. 
Look at the motive here. The, the motive of new birth is the mercy of God. You see it in verse three? The motive of new birth is the mercy of God. Verse three, according to his great mercy. According to his great mercy. So if, if you want to know the reason that God saved you, according to his great mercy, if you want to know the reason that you've been born again, the, the re- because of his great mercy, so I, I think a lot of us have this view that, that, I mean, God's sitting there thinking, man, if I do not draft them, we're in trouble. Our cause is not going to go well without them on our team. That's not the motive. The motive is the mercy of God. That, that's the motive that you're saved. Maybe you could think about it this way. If, if you are a Christian and your coworker is not, what is the reason for that? What, what's the reason that, that you are and, and they're not? See, okay, so, so you could say, well, I was just a little more open to spiritual things. Well, why is that? Well, I don't know. I was raised in a family that I just kind of, you know, well, why is that? And see, if you start asking the question why long enough and hard enough, here's what you're going to find. The reason you're a Christian has nothing to do with you and everything to do with the grace of God. Right? You see that? It's according to mercy. That's why we're Christians. I, I think one of the reasons that for a lot of us, we don't fall down like Peter on his face worshiping God when we think about our salvation is because we think we contributed way too much to it. See, when we start to see that this is about the mercy and grace of God, it produces in us great worship of God. And, and one more thing about rebirth, and then we'll, we'll keep going. New birth always causes new life. It always causes new life. New birth always equates into a changed life. In other words, when your heart is changed, your life is changed. And Peter's about to get all over this. If you look down in, in 1 Peter um, chapter 1, 14, 15, 16, he's about to tell you, because God is holy, we're going to be holy. He's about to jump right into the middle of this, that when, when your heart has been made new, when God has caused you, according to his great mercy, to be born again, it produces this radical change of life. And listen, there are people who don't see it this way, though. I'm telling you, it's all over the place. In Christian world, um, and, and I don't mean to, to razz on this guy here, but I, I want to point out one to you, George Barnum. He recently did a poll, uh, kind of these statistics, and, uh, and if, you, if you've kind of been in Christian world, you probably heard at some point a Barna statistic. Well, he came out with a report here recently. The title of the report was, was called this, born-again Christians are just as likely to divorce as are non-Christians. Okay, so that was the title of the report. And basically, he's saying this in the report, that the lives of born-again Christians look just like the lives of people who are not born again, who, who, are, not, who are not Christians. They, they look identical. Okay, now I want you to see how his logic in this report cuts directly against the grain of New Testament logic. He, here's his logic. Now, you're going to have to follow me. Think with me here. I want you to see this. His logic goes like this. He asks two questions to start off the report. Number one, are you, have you made a, a decision for Jesus that's still important for you today? So has that happened and is it still important to you? Two, are you going to heaven when you die? Almost every red-blooded American says yes and yes to those two questions, right? Okay, so those are his two questions. And if you answer yes to those two questions, here's his assumption. You're born again. So confession equals born again. Then he looks at their life and concludes born-again Christians don't live any different than those who are not born again. See the logic? That is not New Testament logic. New Testament logic starts with this. 
If you are born again, like your heart has been remade, reoriented, reshaped around the things of God, there will be drastic results in your life. That's where we start. Now, it would look, New Testament would look at these stats like this. It would, it would definitely, we, we would all agree that people who profess Jesus, they're not living like Jesus. So, so New Testament logic would say, okay, so there's many people who profess the name of Jesus who don't live like Jesus. Conclusion, there are many people professing Jesus that are not born again. Do you see the difference in the logic? See, see, the problem is not born again Christians don't live like Jesus. The problem is many people professing Jesus are not born again. That's why they're not living like Jesus. Do you see that? See, when we are born again, when we are reshaped, remade, reoriented by the gospel, it always produces a change in our life. I, I love um, one of the, the early church um, fathers, uh, Augustine. He was addicted to sex. He had a huge problem with sex and just loose living in general. And after he became a Christian, he, at one point he went back to a, a former city where he had a mistress. And uh, the mistress made several attempts at him. And uh, he stiff-armed him over and over, uh, you know, over and again. And she became very angry and walked away. And as she was walking away, it occurred to her, I know what the problem is. He doesn't know who I am. He's forgotten who I am. So, so he call, she calls to Augustine and says, Augustine, it is I. And he looks back at her and he says, I know, but it is no longer I. You see that? This is the effect of being reborn, of being remade, that it's no longer you. It's a new you, a completely new you. This is the idea. It always produces drastic results in our life. So, so why is Peter, why is his heart exploding when, when you get to verse three? Because God has caused him to be born again. He's seeing this. He's savoring this. He's sitting in this. Second reason. He says, we're born again to a living hope. Do you see it in verse three? He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, when, when we think about hope culturally, we think about it in much different terms than the New Testament thinks about it, and really the Bible thinks about it. We think about hope as general optimism. So today the Cowboys are playing. What do you think, 50-50? <laughs> right? That may be gracious, 25-75, that might be better, right? So we think about it as general optimism. And, and when we use the word hope, it's always filled with uncertainty. It's a, I hope this is going to work out well, but it, it may not. That is not how the Bible thinks about hope. The Bible thinks about hope this way. I, I love this definition. I heard one pastor say, hope is a sure conviction of the triumph of God. That's what hope is. There's not uncertainty in it. It's a sure conviction that God wins at the end of the day. That, that it's not 50-50. It's 100% sure that he wins. That this is hope. You see, it says living hope. I, I think it's, it's important to know what he's talking about there. Think James chapter two, where you've got living faith and dead faith. Living faith is the sort of faith that actually produces change in our life. Living hope is the sort of hope that actually produces change in the way we live on Monday morning. That's living hope. It affects something. It produces something in us. It changes the way we feel, the way we act, the way we think, all of those things. It changes things. That's living hope. Okay, to illustrate this, let me go back to uh, Cowboys. Man, I'm sorry. I, I feel like I'm all over the Cowboys here. Um, do y'all remember in 2007, Tony Romo's first year, playoff game, Seattle Seahawks? Yeah, I do too. <laughs> I'm doing a wedding in, in California um, and while the game's going on, mind you. So I'm doing a wedding, think about how can I get out of this wedding as quick as possible, right? <laughs> 
And so we had the game TiVo'd, we did the wedding, and, and we, as soon as we finished, we shot to a, to a home to watch the game. And man, we are on pins and needles. I mean, we're living and dying with each play, right? You know what? I mean, beads of sweat just dropping off of all of us. So, so this is us watching this game. And I'll never forget, there was one guy over in the corner that no beads of sweat. There was no, like, worry. There was no living and dying with each play. Calm, collected, cool, just watching the game. What's wrong with you, right? And, and here, here was the, the end story of that. He had already seen the result. It was like 11 o'clock. He knows the end of the, the game. He knows that the Romo fumbles the snap, right? He, he knows that. And, and so what does that produce in the midst of that game? I don't live and die with each play when I know the outcome. Now, here's where that, that illustration just falls apart, is the Cowboys lost. But here's what we know as Christians. God wins. Amen? God wins. So, so here's what that means for us, that we've got this living hope that regardless of, of all, how all the plays turn out in the middle, regardless of, of a good play, bad play, fumble snap, regardless of all of that, we have got this confident assurance of the, triumphs of, God, of the triumph of God, that Jesus is real. Jesus saves. Jesus is coming back. And because we're in Jesus, we win. This is the living hope that it produces. So now in the middle of the game, when the plays are happening, we've got this calm assurance, this peace, this steadiness about us, because in the end, we know God triumphs. You see, this is the sort of living hope we're talking about. And I think there's two reasons that we have this living hope. You see it here? here here's reason number three. Why do we have this living hope? Our hope lives because God's guarding our inheritance. Do you see it in verse four? Our hope lives because God's guarding our inheritance. Verse four, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. In the Old Testament, inheritance is a big idea. You've got the people of God being redeemed and, and rescued out of slavery. But where do they find themselves for like the next 40 years? In the wilderness, awaiting their inheritance in the promised land. The promised land is, is God's place in his full presence. And they're in the wilderness awaiting that. And much like them in the wilderness, if you're a Christian right now, God has rescued you from slavery, but you're in the wilderness. You're not in the promised land yet. But, but here was his promise to the Old Testament saints. Just wait, it's coming. And here's his promise to Christians. Just wait, it's, it's on the horizon. It's coming for you. Just, just wait. This is his promise. That there is this inheritance that's being guarded by God for you. And he gives some descriptions about it. One, it's particulars. Look, look at um, verse four here. He, he gives these three words. I love these three words, imperishable. And parents, oh, that we would clue into this that you can leave your kids a billion different things, but everything but Jesus is perishable. You know that? You can leave them house, you can leave them an inherit, you can leave them all that. But if you don't give them Jesus, everything dies with them. It's imperishable. He says it's, it's undefiled, it's untainted by sin and Satan. It's unfading. Unlike everything else on the planet, it doesn't grow dim. It doesn't lose its luster, but it actually goes stronger and bigger and brighter as the days roll on. So those are the particulars. Then he gives its place. You see that? He says it's, it's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven. 
Now, heaven is another word that needs to be resurrected. We don't have time this morning. But, but if you look at Genesis chapter 1, and by the way, I think a lot of people have this view of heaven. This is going to be a boring place, right? I mean, we're probably going to be issued like our personal cloud, two harps, a halo, and a lifetime membership to the choir, right? That is not heaven, okay? That's not heaven. That's not, think Genesis chapter one and two. Do you see that creative God that created that in Genesis one and two? All the wonders that you see right now. And, and he's saying, listen, that your best is yet to come. The best is, is not here, it's yet to come. It's gonna be this recreated heaven and earth that's gonna be here, remade, recreated, without the curse of sin and Satan all around it. The best is yet to come. Listen to Sam Storms describe this future reality of heaven. This is good. It's a long quote, so hang in there with me. It's gonna be on the screen for you. Sam Storm says it this way. When we get to heaven, there will be nothing that is abrasive, irritating, agitating, or hurtful. Nothing harmful, hateful, upsetting, or unkind. Nothing sad, bad, or mad. Nothing harsh or impatient or ungrateful or unworthy. Nothing weak or sick or broken or foolish. Nothing deformed, nothing degenerate, depraved, or disgusting. Nothing polluted, pathetic, poor, or putrid. Nothing dark or dismal or dismaying or degrading. Nothing blameworthy, blemished, blasphemous, or blighted. Nothing faulty, uh, faithless, frail, or fading. Nothing grotesque or grievous, hideous or insidious. Nothing illegal uh, or illicit or illegal. Lascivious or lustful. My vocabulary is expanding right now as I read. Nothing marred or mutilated, mutilated, misaligned or misinformed. Nothing naughty or nasty, offensive or odious. Nothing rancid or rude, spoiled or soiled. Nothing vile or vicious, wasteful or wanton. Wherever you turn, your eyes will see nothing but glory and grandeur and beauty and brightness and purity and perfection and splendor and satisfaction and sweetness and salvation and majesty and marvel and holiness and happiness. We will see only and all that is adorable and affectionate, beautiful and bright, brilliant and bountiful, delightful and delicious, delectable and dazzling, elegant and exciting, fascinating and fruitful, glorious and grand, gracious and good, happy and holy, healthy and whole, joyful and jubilant, lovely and luscious, majestic and marvelous, opulent and overwhelming, radiant and resplendent, splendid and sublime, sweet and savoring, tender and tasteful, euphoric and unified. This is what's awaiting there. You see that? That's the place that we're we're going. That's what's coming for us. This is the inheritance and it's on its way toward you if you're a Christian. This is its place. And then look at that last little phrase in verse four. You see how it's personal? Kept in heaven for who? For you. You see that? That God is saying, this is what's coming for you. This is what's down the pike for you. If you're a believer, you've been born again. God God has regenerated your heart. God has made it come alive. You've you've responded in faith to him, trusted and treasured him. This is what's coming for you, Peter's saying. And and can we just step back from the table and talk for two seconds here? I, I think one of the missing marks of Christians in the Western world is a future orientation. I think this is one of the missing marks that we have worked so hard to make this seem like home for us. And see, here's the problem. I, I, I think one of the reasons that Western Christians suffer so poorly, procrastinate with everything spiritual, spiritual so well, why we risk so little, is rather than a burning love for the world to come in our heart, we have a burning love for this world. 
I think this is one of the problems with so many of just the, the, on the practical grind of how we live that we don't have a burning love for the future world in our heart. See, it's impossible to live as exiles without a hope in a future world. It's impossible to live as pilgrims unless our heart is set on God's future promised land. It's impossible to do that. Unless, unless our hearts are burning for this future world, it is impossible for us to joyfully lose our place in this world. Unless our heart is burning for a future world, it's impossible for us to lose face in this world. See, unless our heart is set on a future world, it's impossible to joyfully endure various trials, 1 Peter 1, 6, in this world. It's impossible. It's impossible to say along with Jesus, blessed are you when, when you're persecuted, when you're reviled for my name's sake. Rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven. See, it's, it's impossible to feel that way about life unless our heart is set on heaven. It's impossible. You see that? I think this is one of the missing marks in so many of our lives is this future orientation that this is not all there is. That we're exiles, we're pilgrims here. We need to labor, labor, work to keep this future orientation in front of us. Okay, now listen to these words from Jonathan Edwards, probably America's greatest theologian, as he encourages Christians to labor for that future orientation. Okay, now, now listen to this. Listen to what he says here. He says, labor to get a sense of the vanity of this world. Let me ask you a question. Do you labor to do that? Do you labor to get a sense of this world is not all there is? He says, labor to get a sense of the vanity of this world on account, on account of the little satisfaction that is to be enjoyed here. It's short span. Do you consider the short span? That it's a vapor? He says, labor to see its short span and the unserviceableness when we most stand in need of help. All men that live any considerable time in the world might see enough to convince them of its vanity if they would but consider it. Do you consider it? Do you labor to work to see the vanity of this world? He goes on to say, labor to turn your thoughts this way. Okay, listen to this statement. Labor to be much acquainted with heaven. Do you labor to be much acquainted with heaven? Do you labor on that? Work for that? Labor to be much acquainted with heaven. Look, look at the reason he says here. If you are not acquainted with it, with heaven, you will not likely be able to spend your life as on a journey to it. Do you see that? He's saying, you're not going to be able to live as a pilgrim if you're not thinking about heaven. You're not going to be able to live as an exile if you're not thinking about your promised land. You will not be sensible of its worth, the worth of heaven, imperishable undefiled, unfading. You, you won't be sensible of its worth if you don't think about it, nor will you long for it. See, you won't long for heaven unless you think about heaven, he's saying. Unless you are much conversant in your mind with a better good, with your good inheritance with heaven, it will be exceedingly difficult to loosen your heart from worldly things, to use worldly things only in subordination to something else, namely God, and be ready to part with them for the sake of the better good. See, he's saying, you're going you're gonna to live your life just with a grip around everything this world offers unless you labor to think about what is in front of you. 
Labor, therefore, to obtain a realizing sense of a heavenly world, to get a firm belief of its reality, and let Christians help one another in this journey. I love this. Let them be exhorted to go this journey as it were in company together, us together, doing what? Conversing together and assisting one another, using all means they can to help each other up the hill. It's personal. Do you labor to get a sense of heaven? Do you labor, work to get a realizing sense, Jonathan Edwards calls it, of what's to come? And last thing, we'll we'll kind of wrap it up with this. Why do we have this living hope? Like, why is Peter's heart just exploding inside of him when you get to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3? Not only because God's guarding our inheritance, but here's his last one. Our hope lives because God's guarding us. Do you see this in verse five? Look at verse five. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That, that word guarded, that's a military type word. And sometimes you use it, like, or you see it used biblically in the context of protecting something from an outside attack. And other times you see it used as basically saying that, that it's guarding somebody from escaping. Like, so, so it keeps people in and it keeps the bad people out. This is the idea. And I think both of those ideas are here. I think P- Peter is saying, God is guarding you. He's keeping everything away that's bad and he's keeping you in. I think he's anticipating. I think Peter is anticipating this response from his readers. Okay, so I get that gar- God's guarding the inheritance for me, but what if I don't make it there? I mean, what if I stumble into sin? What if I succumb to temptation? What about in the second verse of Amazing Grace, these toils and dangers and snares? What about that? And I think Peter's saying, listen, it's not just God guarding the inheritance for you. It's God guarding you for the inheritance. If you're a Christian, I think you can think about your Christian life like this. You're on a rubber band. And as hard as you run from God, God in his grace is gonna snap you back. He's guarding you. See, see, if this God is the God who before the foundation of the world set his affection on you, the, the Spirit comes along and regenerates your heart, remakes, reforms it, you respond in faith. God creates this faith in you and you respond with it. Then, then wouldn't it be like logical to conclude that that same God is going to carry that through to completion? I mean, wouldn't that be logical? This is what Peter's saying. That if God's going to do all that, he's going to guard you so that you actually get to experience all that. So this doesn't take the personal responsibility of believe in Jesus, keep your faith. It's not taking away the personal responsibility of that. Peter is saying, believers, keep your faith in God, hope in God, trust in God, believe in God, love God, desire God, run after God. He's saying all that. He's saying that, listen, your faith is what keeps you in God. He's saying this in a bigger sense, that it is God's power that keeps you in faith. You see that? He's saying that it is God's power who at the end of the day keeps you corralled, keeps the bad things out and keeps you in. And don't you think that would be really relevant for Peter? Our man who in one moment is this great courageous saint and in another moment is this denier. Don't you think that's heartening for people? Maybe you need to hear this this morning that you have been struggling. Right now your faith is absolutely weak. Maybe you just need to hear this. God's guarding that faith. He's protecting that faith, nourishing that, keeping the the bad things out and keeping the right things in. That that it's God who's keeping you in that faith. Last phrase of verse five and then we're done. 
for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The the Bible um, uses the word salvation. It's this idea of rescue or deliverance. It uses it in three tenses. One tense is in a past tense. It'll, It'll say periodically that you have been saved from the past penalty of your sin. That because of the work of Jesus, lived a perfect life in your place, died an undeserving death in your place, rose again on the third day, that, that because when we, now when we respond in faith to that, that, that we are saved from, past tense, the penalty of our sin. So it's a past tense, but it's also a present tense, that God is presently saving you from, from the power of sin in your life today. But it's also used in a future tense, and this is how it's used here, in this future tense that one day God will save us from the from the full presence of sin, that it will be no more, that your inheritance will be yours, that that future orientation. And and here's the sense I think you get as you read these three verses, that that when Peter thinks about the past tense and the present tense, as great as all of those things are that have happened to us and are happening to us, he is saying to believers, these suffering believers, in the crucible believers, in the furnace of affliction, those believers, he's saying, listen, The best is yet to come for you. The best is yet to come. That there's going to be a day that's better than everything and anything you have ever experienced. Let me close it with an old Puritan, Richard Sibbs, as he describes what's to come. He says this, it'll be on the screen for you. God reserves the best for last. God's last works are his best works. The new heavens and the new earth are the best. The second wine that Christ created himself was the best. Spiritual things are better than natural things. A a Christian's last is his best. God will have it so for the comfort of Christians that every day they live, they may think, my best is not yet. My best is to come. That every day they rise, they may think, I am nearer to heaven one day than I was before. I am nearer death and therefore nearer to Christ. What a solace it is, or this is, to a gracious heart. A Christian is a happy man in his life, but happier in his death, because then he goes to Christ, but happiest of all in heaven, for then he is with Christ. And see, when when these things start to become in view for us, all that God has done, all that he has pledged and promised himself to do, then like Peter, our heart starts to explode as we say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray together. If you are not a Christian in this room, I, I think these, these, these verses just, they are soaked with a gospel invitation if God is drawing, if he is working, if, if you have this feel in your heart today of, I want that. I lo- I, I'm in for that. That, that I, I, I want Jesus. See, if that's working in your heart today, if you're feeling those sort of things, that means the Spirit of God is regenerating. The Spirit of God is, is, is at work making you born again. He's at work in this idea of new birth. And here's the response that a person should have when God is starting to work that way, is that we throw our hands up, trusting and treasuring Jesus, trusting Jesus. We're saying, God, because of what you have done for us in Jesus, I'm giving you my life. I'm surrendering everything. Here I am. I'm yours. And treasuring Jesus above all things, that God, my loyalty and love is ultimately to you. And the Bible says that when that happens, that God saves us. 
past tense, the penalty of our sin is paid for. We are brought into God's family. So if God's working that in you, man, I I just encourage that response today. God can save you today. And for those that, that are Christians in the room, in other words, you have been born again. Maybe there should be a warning and an encouragement today. Warning. That if our lives are not reflective of a, cha- a radically transformed and changed heart, m- maybe that should give us pause so that we're thinking and our logic is like the New Testament's, not confession equals born again. Okay, so our lives aren't right. So born again Christians, they, they just don't live like wrong logic, right logic. When God radically reshapes our heart, it changes our life. It's got fruit associated with that. It does something to us. So, so maybe this should give us pause to think, has God done that then? See, there's many professing Christians who, who have never been changed by God. So, so maybe there's a warning for us in that today. But then there is this great celebration that God has caused this in us, that God has done this in us, that this is according to the mercy of God. This is according to, to a God who in his grace breathes life into a valley of dry bones that they live. And so we get to celebrate that. We get to allow our hearts to come alive to that. It it gets to turn into this living hope for us that we are sure and confident of the future triumph of God. That that we are aware that God is keeping a beautiful inheritance for us. That there is this future orientation to our life. that, That we are longing for the promised land. And that we know that God's not only keeping this inheritance, but he is keeping us for the inheritance. That he is guarding us, protecting us. That the same God who creates faith carries our faith. And so, oh, that it would cause us to stand up, to cheer, to clap, to be awed at, to worship with Peter as we say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. May it be. Amen. Why don't you stand with us? Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.